Hello, and welcome to the Cadre Journal. This is the first part of a two-part episode on the Brazilian elections. We reflect with André Nascimento, a Brazilian PhD candidate at Cornell University, on the first round of voting held on October 2nd. We'll have a second part of this episode after the second round of voting and the runoff between Jair Bolsonaro and Lula held on October 30th. Thanks for listening, enjoy, and look out for episode two. Just to begin, if you'd like to introduce yourself, and then I can start asking questions. Okay, so I, my name is Andrea Cimento. I'm one of the PhD candidates now uh, in the Department of Romance Studies, uh, and I'm more in the Spanish section. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. And to begin, the conversation we're having today is centered around the Brazilian election, and I'm particularly interested in your reaction, your feelings, your emotions after the first round. As we know, uh, a couple days after Lula and Bolsonaro, like a few, you know, people sort of expected that would be the possible outcome. Although I think there was an expectation that Lula could win in the first round. So I'm I'm curious about your feelings, your emotions after that round. I know that it was emotionally a lot for a lot of Brazilians that I spoke to as well. Um, but yeah, if you could just describe your reactions from it. Yeah, it's interesting because amongst the uh, analyst or the po- positive analyst, mm-hmm. I was not, I was not one that was predicting that Lula would win in the first round. Mm-hmm. I was more in the pessimist f- field, but even for me, that had more a pessimist view. View was kind of shocking because I thought that Bolsonaro would go to the second round, be more humiliated or right. in a better or in a worse condition. Yeah. So I thought that, especially because also historically our polling system in Brazil, they were almost accurate Mm -hmm. so they would give like two or three points as a margin for positive for plus or plus votes Mm -hmm. and unfortunately uh, we don't know what's happening we are still trying to make some sense of it the Bolsonaro got roughly almost 10 points more than we were predicting and almost 10 points more that were were predicted by the polls in the aftermath of four years of pandemic, of mm-hmm. everyone knowing that Bolsonaro was working deliberately against the vaccines, when Pfizer wrote him an email trying to make Brazil a disparatype because of our massive and amazing system of, of universal health system that it would be used for to facilitate the distribution of vaccines, and Bolsonaro lasted took three months to answer Pfizer. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, the person that was mocking of people that were dying of COVID, they were, he was completely denying, discrediting the vaccine. So after these four years, Bolsonaro having the numbers that he got was really shocking for a lot of people. Uh, and so on Sunday, honestly, I was very worried about the possibility of Bolsonaro winning the election uh, on October the 30th. So I thought there was a very palpable possibility for that to happen. Um, now I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I think that uh, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has not more places to get more votes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he's going to work massively on fake, new, fake news campaigns, mm-hmm. getting interna- international support. Yeah. For example, Donald Trump Jr. is being working at- actively 
supporting Bolsonaro in his campaigns. Uh, but I think that we will win, mm -hmm. Lula will win. Um, the problem is that Bolsonaro has got very much, you know, attention. So he managed because of like also the influence of the evangelical churches yep. in Brazil. Um, he got people that he supported is kind of flooding the Senate and flooding uh, the House as well. So mm -hmm. I think that that's going to be one of the more difficulties for, for Lula to win. Uh, no, not even to win, but to actually be able to govern. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a, my, my first reaction. So at first, I was very pessimist, but I think there's also room for us to be optimistic. Right. We got 6 million votes more. We have people that are... Also, one interesting thing that is just happening right now is that two days ago, there was this uh, video of Bolsonaro in a Freemason store. Interesting. And... And which seems to me to be something very silly that Bolsonaro is pretty much giving a speech in the Freemasonry, right. you know, like very, like very silly thing, is that for a lot of evangelical fundamentalists that represents a betrayal, a betrayal against yeah. their faith. Right. So because of the images of the thing, of all of, all of the gods, mammon, and they think that could be something that Bolsonaro is doing a pact with the devil. <laughs> right. And so. Uh, for us, in the left, or more progressive, seem to be like, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. But it is being created a very strong um, reshifting. Right. Uh, so Bolsonaro has had to address his people about that. Silas Malafaia was one of the terrible pastors that mm -hmm. uh, has actually shaped a lot of the political thought in Brazil in the last few years, has had to come to public to say something about uh, ideological battle is going on right now when Bolsonaro is trying to defend himself and prove that he is evangelical. So Bolsonaro, because during the election four years ago, Bolsonaro went to Israel right. to uh -huh. baptize himself in the sacred river that Jesus got baptized himself. You know? So yeah. because he wanted to prove that he was very much evangelical, right. and now there is this thing in which he is being associated with the Freemasons. Yeah. yeah, definitely not a good look on his part. But I'm curious, you mentioned Donald Trump Jr. and the kind of international role here, and a lot of the speculation in the lead-up to the election was on the possibility of a coup. There are Bolsonaro's quotes where he says, only God can take me out of power. Uh, and then he has another, this is after the first round where he says, as you just mentioned, you know, where is he going to get votes from? He said something like, I'm going to get extra support, but I can't tell you from where it is. And this is like very subtly implying some, uh, some subversion. Um, I wonder how legitimate you think the possibility of a coup is at the same time, you know, not just thinking about it in terms of like the U.S. doing what it did in the past in Operation Condor or throughout Latin America, but even just thinking about the rise in political violence in Brazil. There was a, a Lula supporter stabbed on the day of the election. And then, as you even mentioned, the possibility that there is no coup in the kind of dramatic way we think about it with tanks and the army, but instead what we actually saw with Lula of the lawfare that happened, of course, against Dilma Rousseff as well, that Lula could just be you know, a, a coup could occur judicially against him. So all of these obstacles towards the left achieving any kind of power, uh, it feels hard to 
imagine that there can just be a, a peaceful transition that Lula can govern, it seems like Brazil's headed for instability. I think this is a great question, uh, especially right now, because Bolsonaro having lots of people in the Senate, in the House, there is also being claims, especially some debates on the internet, that Bolsonaro could easily try to initiate a legal process to impeach mm. uh, Supreme Court judges. Uh, which is unthinkable in Brazil. Also, all of the changes that he has made in the Constitution for the past four years, uh, for some a juridical expert to be saying that the Constitution has been completely dilapidated. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, so there is actually this threat of the rule of law, how things are going to go if Bolsonaro wins the election. And if he doesn't win the election, what's Bolsonaro going to do? So I... Even though Bolsonaro has, uh, in his children, Eduardo Bolsonaro has said once that uh, to make a coup d'etat in Brazil today was very easy because mm-hmm. he didn't only he, if he only sent one car, one vehicle, he would be able to close the Supreme Court. Yeah. So it was not it's not difficult, not challenging for him. But unfortunately for him, I don't think that that's true yeah. because. Um, Maybe if you were in Trump years in the U.S., mm-hmm. or if there was some international conjuncture that would support a coup d'etat in Brazil, that would happen. But especially if you consider the international context right now, yeah. in which we have the growing conflict with Russia and Ukraine, uh, all of the European crisis happening right now, I don't think Bolsonaro would have political leverage internationally to mm-hmm. maintain a coup d'etat in Brazil because of the importance of the Brazilian economy to the world. Right. Uh, so John, Donald Trump Jr. himself, and even Donald Trump and Bannon, when he was supporting mm-hmm. the election in 2018 in Brazil, they've said that uh, the Brazilian election was the second most important election in the world wow. after the, the U.S. election. All right. uh, so what I believe is that since they cannot have international support from the U.S. right now, because the U.S. has mm-hmm. also to advance, supposedly, uh, the power of democracy in (laughs) the Americas or in the civilized world, I don't think that any coup d'etat would be be legitimized. So I think actually an attempt could even happen, but you wouldn't find Latin American leverage, Latin American countries wouldn't support, wouldn't recognize the government. Uh, The U.S. wouldn't recognize the government as the, the U.S. Senate has already approved that they would pretty much respect the decision of the polls that the Brazilian ballots are very much respectable is actually one of the models for several countries. And also, I think Bolsonaro is also very shocked because the army leaders themselves, they said that they are going to respect the elections. Right. Uh, so I don't think there is any scenario that I'd see that a coup d'etat would happen. Right. You mentioned the international conditions of the world, and, and I want to just hone in on Latin America in particular and We've seen what some have said is the reemergence of a pink tide, a new pink tide, uh, with the elections of Petro in Colombia, Boric in Chile. What impact do you think that has on this election, that there is, it seems like in other countries, in Latin America even, there is a stronger balance of power towards the left that wouldn't, we would hope, allow for Bolsonaro to hold on to power in this way? And taking that question even further and thinking about hypothetical Lula victory, what does that victory, if it, you know, is able to get through this legal process, as you discussed, through the Constitution and uh, the lawfare that's been initiated over the past, how is that 
helping to revitalize the left in Latin America. What are the possibilities moving after that? I'm curious about the context of this election within the broader movement in Latin America in particular. I would just like go back a little bit to one thing that I said about Bolsonaro not having political leverage with the army for a coup d'etat, mm-hmm. which I don't think he does. Uh, but he still has a lot of influence with local and military police. Yeah, right. So I think that that would be one of the the only avenues Bolsonaro would try to establish terrors in, uh, terror mm-hmm. in, in local places. For example, it is still very difficult to understand why Rio de Janeiro has got only 20% of votes for the left candidate. Wow. Uh, so it... So a lot of analysts have been saying about like the pressure to the militias and the paramilitary police has been creating, or even the the f- Christian fundamentalist drug lords. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one that is called Israel, okay. and so in these Israel zones, people from Afro-Brazilian religions cannot express their religions because right. it's supposed to be Christian wow. because they are the new Israelites. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be the only avenue that Bolsonaro could try to do something, but he would only be able to do that mo- mostly in Rio or in rural zones where he also was very much close to the agribusiness. But going point, going back to your second questions concerning the um, <clears throat> the pink tide in Latin America, I think it's a complicated question. Mm-hmm. I think the right uses that language all the time to try yeah. to to try to hone in examples from Venezuela yeah. or the Argentina current crisis uh, to say like where the left actually start yeah. uh, the crisis begin. Right. Of course, they'll never be able to point it out. Look how capitalism also tries to. Uh, pr- propose those crises exactly. so that yeah. so that there is no uh, you know like flourishing of a better life for the people, but the rights being using that pretty much. But the problem is that I feel I think that the left to try to maintain itself in legitimacy in power does pretty much lots of agreement with the right yeah. with the right wing. So in what we call in Latin America usually the the ample front. So we try to to amplify the front so much that we don't know what it's what, who is who. We don't know what right. is left or what is right, what is center. Yeah. So I think this is one of the problems because, of course, it legitimizes the left to remain in power, but the future charges the debt. So we have That's to right. we have to pay back, and when you have to pay back with the crisis and not having actually the Increasing the quality of life of people that are in very precarious conditions, or the middle class not having the dreams of the middle class of yeah. the capitalism that was sold to them, and then there is a swing back to the right. Yeah. So I think this is one of the things that I believe that for now, like especially this generation of the pink type that you're seeing right now, is very crucial for us to be able to maintain a future or a left future mm-hmm. in Latin America because. I think, for example, we don't have another candidate for for Lula to replace Lula yeah. uh, yeah. in the future elections. Uh, Boric is facing massive crisis with popularity in Chile. Yeah. Uh, the the events against Cristina Kirchner almost like right. there is even like the attempt of murder a few weeks ago. Yeah. So I I believe that for I think the left is in Latin America would be great if Lula actually would come to power, but as we would have when Lula was in power in the first few years in 2022, in 2002, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, to restructure something of Mercosur or yeah, the South right. Agreement. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's something like that should be taught, but also ideologically with the left, because uh, I think the same thing that we are seeing in the U.S. right now, like the Democratic Party is losing political average with the most poor people, with the racialized people in the U.S., and we are seeing, again, a movement to the right. So I think we Latin American politicians and left-wing thinkers we have really to try to do something to not let that happen because I think that movement can easily be replicated in Latin America in the next few years. Definitely. And and it's interesting you mention that because like today I was looking up, you know, discussion questions and kind of thinking about what to talk about and I, I saw that The Economist had published an op-ed where they endorsed Lula and said uh, if Lula moves further to the center, you know, he will be the right president for Brazil. And it's funny, I mean, we all know what Lenin said about The Economist, but it's not a surprise that the the bourgeoisie in this case would want Lula, you know, there, there is some fatigue with the chaos of Bolsonaro as this Trump populist, whatever he is, uh, you know, very far-right demagogue. But it, it's also troubling as a leftist to see this, you know, publication for Capital come out and say, well, if only he will go back to being in the center, preserve basically our rights, like, okay, it's fine, we'll take him over at Bolsonaro. And I'm not saying Lula will go that way. There's been others like Vijay Prashad who've said, you know, Lula is running on the left of Lula as president 20 years ago. He's further to the left. His policies have changed. But I wonder what you think even about, you know, hypothetically we get over this period, end of October he wins and he comes into power one of the big concerns I'm sure you know about is the Amazon, is the environment, it is protecting natural resources. And we know Bolsonaro hasn't done that. He's destroyed the Amazon. But what is the hope that Lula can do differently in his administration to protect the Amazon, to protect natural resources and protect indigenous communities who live there? Because I think that's one of the tests of whether he can be a president to kind of you know, be really proud of on the left and say he actually came in and did this differently? Uh, that's a great question, and unfortunately I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. What is interesting is because a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I was interpreting a conference, mm-hmm. and it was interpreting for Brazilian journalists, okay. and the same, a very similar question to yours was asked, and I remember that this very prominent journalist that wrote a book about Bolsonaro she would say, unfortunately, I don't know either, because uh, we are so much in the discussion, we are entrapped in the discussion yeah. to save democracy, we need to, because Bolsonaro is portraying fascism for us, right. so we need to do something that is not going to be that, that these other discussions are very peripheral. Like we, we are not seeing this discussion, even though the importance that Amazon has, uh, the, the political debates are not talking about that. Yeah. The political right. debates are being are being taken to an avenue where uh, we need to fight against Bolsonaro or we need to fight against Lula. So, of course, Lula has had, and also the people that he's approached himself are people that are uh, pro-Amazon or try against deforestation and trying to, you know, at least make some mechanisms to control to control uh, all of the violent processes that Bolsonaro initiated or advanced because he didn't initiate all of the deforestation mm-hmm. processes. But I also believe that there is going to be lots of struggles. I think we have yeah. to continue the struggles even within 
uh, Lula's, Lula's government because we cannot forget that Lula was the president that created the project of Belo Monte. Yeah. So yeah. that was uh, completed during Dilma years. Uh, it was a process completely violent for rural communities, for mm -hmm. indigenous communities. And yeah, I think that was, that was terrifying. That was terrible what happened. I think the difference is that Bolsonaro celebrates. He celebrates the death of indigenous people. Right. He celebrates the death of rural rural communities. And but what I believe is that these discussions of climate change, the discussion of the importance of the Amazon, are not even considered legitimate in the Bolsonaro government. Definitely not. Yeah. Uh, so I think that 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 what Lula represents, that represents that at least for the people in the Workers' Party, mm -hmm. for the people, for Lula himself, this is considered to be a legitimate conversation. Right. So I was an interpreter for many years during Lula years when he was, when he was president, when Dilma was president, and it was the amount of congresses and conferences that it was taking place in terms of oil leakage or how Petrobras should better their processes of uh, <clears throat> of tapping oil oil leakages, or how mm -hmm. like to better technology for those things. It was all it was happening all the time. Right. Uh, I think right now those things are considered to be very peripheral. Even though when Brazil was much more advanced in terms of having these conversations because of the importance of our bio life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that, unfortunately, I don't have a very clear answer yeah. to that because these conversations are happening, unfortunately. But I would be curious to hear from my own personal opinion going in as someone who isn't Brazilian, what the left on the ground, outside of the Workers' Party, is mm -hmm. making of the election. I'm specifically interested in the MST and other social movements that represent the poor um, and the landless and kind of the approach towards electoral politics in general like seeing it as, I think as we're discussing, that you, you have this as a necessity in addition to extra parliamentary organizing. But how has the left approached this question of the election? Has there been a united front around Lula, or is there still kind of like the traditional divisions within the left that we see around the world? Mm, not for the first round. There was not mm -hmm. a co cohesion for, for the left in the first round. Um, unfortunately, I believe that so the position of the left communist party for ex of the Brazilian communist party, for example, because we have two communist parties in mm -hmm. Brazil, we have the Brazilian communist party and the communist party of Brazil, mm -hmm. because there was a division in the sixties. Uh, the Brazilian communist party then had a candidate uh, because the candidate was because the, the the position of the Brazilian communist party was that we we shouldn't support uh, fully. Lula's support, and also with the fact that Lula had uh, was bringing to the government lots of people in the right for yeah. his his vice president, for example, running the same ticket, uh, is a person that was historically against Lula, yeah. representing the very right. I mean, I don't, don't want to say far right wing party, but a right wing party right. that has been in power for many years and and led the country to a terrible situation. Yeah, and. <clears throat> So and also like other parties were, but other workers, other modes of workers' party were supporting Lula. Uh, MST historically has always worked with Lula, as mm -hmm. they were this this year too. Um, so 
I honestly don't know how to make of it because yeah. it, honestly, I believe that there is the importance to to make, to show that we are not fully accepting some connections with the la- with the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, I feel that there is some. I think what Lenny would call like the the left wing uh, dis- infantile disease, Def- infantilism. Yeah, yeah. I think there is this thing of like um, of sectarianism of like of, unfortunately there is also like something of a boys club of like you know theory bros right. in terms of like who has who has who has the say who has the final say. Uh, so you are coming from the this tradition from Maoist tradition from mm-hmm. Leninist traditions. Yeah. When I think that. Analyzing the the current material conditions of this moment, I'm not sure if those very specific separations that were a hundred years ago were still valid for yeah. our content moment, in which fascism has become a contemporary language for today, yeah. in which yeah. Nazism has become a contemporary language for today, and I think we need at the time there were more cohesion the division. So I think that we we still need we need to actually reassess our conditions. But the left was not united with Lula in the first round. Mm-hmm. The left is definitely united with Lula in the second round, which is which is a good thing, uh, because Bolsonaro is not going to get those votes. Yeah, definitely. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about those left divisions, if you can discuss a little bit how, you know, there was a, a kind of, to historicize it a little bit, like these, um, these divisions emerging in the context of the 60s, in the 1964 coup, and also within like questions about strategy, questions about how to resist uh, the military regime. How does how do those discussions still inform the left today? Like, is there a you know obviously with like a group like the MST, there is a discussion around these kind of outside of politics in the conventional sense, some kind of left wing organizing. But I'm also specifically curious about kind of indigenous movements within Brazil, Afro Brazilian movements, like. How those have informed a, a left-wing strategy in general, because I think sometimes we we even think of the left in this kind of homogenous manner, without considering that there are there's always a kind of uh, extra political fight going on for somebody who who doesn't see parliamentary politics as the way forward, and specifically, of course, as we've seen in the context of the Amazon, there's there are you know people who are resisting. I'm sure you know more about it, but people who are resisting with, with force to defend their, their land against the government. So I'd be curious about how these debates go back to some of these key questions about the strategy to take an approach. And I, I think from my reading of things, I, I'm not an expert, but knowing that Lula was a key opposition figure during the regime, but always kind of advocated a return to democracy, has there been a kind of theorizing of a, an alternative to that? And what impact do they have today? Oh, that's a, also a great question. Uh, the guerrilla movements that were very active during the military dictatorship. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that the way that the military dictatorship operated in Brazil, I have work on this too, mm. is that they saw themselves not as a dictatorship, um, because, like, it's funny because in Portuguese or Spanish, you'd have the word dictadura, like uh-huh. there is a hard dictatorship, right. but they would use the word like a, a soft dictatorship. Okay. So they make a pun saying, like, with that structure, because right. 
the official numbers in comparison to countries like Argentina, where 30,000 yeah. people got killed, yeah. uh, in Brazil they would say that only 400 people got killed. Yeah. So they tortured around 50,000, but officially only and 400 got, got killed. Yeah. And and there was like the belief of, again, like as several other Latin American countries, that the revolution would start in the rural mm-hmm. regions and then it would merge and like seize the sea. So these merges kind of operated because some parties or some guerrillas were not uh, fully adopting the armed conflict. Some of them were more trying to go in terms of educational processes or um, they were not fully agree with the strategy. There were several guerrilla groups. And... <clears throat> So I think there was this there was this crash from like Maoist groups and so for example the separation between the Brazilian Communist Party and the Communist Party of Brazil mm. comes from that too, right. uh, where a country where one of the parties decided not not to be involved with the armed conflict. Um, but I don't think actually anyone joining those parties today would would call back to these histories. I think those right. are different the actions that these parties or the socialist parties they would have in the universities and the public schools, which are very strong, right. or at least it was when I was growing up. Uh, I, I think that... I think there is a lack of, of ability to communicate because I, I think that's why... For in lots of levels, even though I think the Brazilian Socialist Party, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, that would be the soul, right. uh, is a party that managed to get lots of identitarian language mm-hmm. uh, of the uh, black people, indigenous people, people in the favelas. Right. So there is like they they managed to to gather all of these of these languages, all of these struggles, while some structures in some traditional orthodox communist parties, not the Brazilian Communist Party in itself, but some structures that see themselves as more orthodox, they they kind of think that the black struggle is kind of an identitarian struggle. Right. Or yeah. so I and I think it is very maleficent for Definitely. for having a conversation with, with the people, especially in one of the con- in the country that the only country that has more black people than Brazil is Nigeria. Wow. So, yeah, right. so how come you are, dis, you know, dismissing this debate when a country that is completely crossed by racial dimensions, yeah, by definitely. racial structures, yeah. uh, or a country that the majority is women, and you are still saying that not necessarily like that the women's struggle is a struggle of, of identities, or identitarian struggle as if it is not yeah. as important. Which I think is completely a misreading of working class means because working class was never for Marx or Lenin himself as a unit that is completely monolith. It is a structure that is crossed by gender, sexuality. So there is there are differences. Otherwise, the origins of, of the the origins of the family would never be written. Yeah, so right. all <laughs> all of the differentiation is trying to be showing, like even like when. In the, in the condition of the working class in England, mm-hmm. also when Engels is trying to show all of the differentiation between the Irish people, the English people, the condition of the worker, the children. So I think there is so much in our socialist history room for us to analyze those aspects. Definitely. And 
and I think there is this this silencing, this repetition of a. Again, I think that it's returning to a moment in which we are no more, and canceling conversation that I think would be much more fruitful than otherwise. Definitely. Of course, I agree. There are so much, so many problems that it could be used in those identitarianisms. Yeah. But I don't think that that's what people, or the black struggles, indigenous struggles in Brazil were doing. Definitely. They are trying to actually establish a very serious conversation. Definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, this is really fascinating to hear because I think these are the exact kind of debates we see in the left all over the world, particularly in the United States. We have these kind of conversations all the time around what I, what I would say, and we've talked about, um, like, you know, the Cadre Journal, we've had, like, some discussions on it in the past about this Eurocentric, uh, universalistic left that believes that class is... Uh, the white working class, the male working class, and even, you know, it, it's funny that you have that reminder of, like, a country that has had a a history deeply of colonialism, of dispossession, and of slavery in particular, for a, a communist movement to come and say, well, we have no point on these questions because they're irrelevant to us. I think it speaks to a, a very poor analysis of the material conditions on the ground, how to engage with people, um, who make up those communities and, and base their, whether, you know, whether you appreciate it or not, base their understanding on those identities. These are all the kind of questions you have. And I think you did a really good job of saying like that the left universally suffers from this problem of having the archetypal, uh, white male theory bro, who's like, I've read everything. I know Marx believed that class was like a universal thing and we just have to go on that basis I think as you said if we proceed on that we end up with a kind of poor analysis of, of exactly how to change the situation from what I've read from what I've seen there seems to be a lot of belief that Lula is the, the candidate or can represent even as we've been discussing an opportunity to again bring that back into the left and say like we need coalitions we need you know multiple different things rather than and I think as you pointed out the the question of identity politics as it's often put that way uh, sure that's a conversation to be had about whether this should dictate the demands of, of a communist or Marxist movement but at the same time the the desire to just totally peripheralize them, ignore them say they absolutely don't matter is and that has been the historical reality of the left all over the world, and to see that it is in Brazil as well, I think speaks to the the reasons the left has had problems in galvanizing mass support historically. But even just thinking about, you know, when I was speaking to someone else about uh, about Brazil, there was a, a, or about Lula in particular, there was a conversation about, like, well, Lula was the one who allowed Afro-Brazilians to attend higher education, and those little things like seeing some of the discourse on, on the left online about Lula and and hearing some kind of alternative voices who say like, you know, this is just another bourgeois election and it doesn't matter for the left. But then actually seeing how people interpret the reality based on what it meant for them, I think it makes things more nuanced. It doesn't allow for these grandiose Marxist kind of online interpretations of like 
I agree, hundred percent. Like also, like dismissing that as a bourgeois election, I think it's a misreading mm -hmm. of the Brazilian reality. Uh, especially because yes, Lula was the president that initiated the processes of uh, of the quote for uh, for racial quotes for mm -hmm. universities. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I went to a university, I think I only had a black professor, right. like only one, yeah. in a country that the majority is a black, of, made of black people. Right. And because before that, there was only quotes for class quotes. Right. Uh, but it's interesting because lots of people that were in the lower middle class, they could also categorize for the class quotes. Hmm. And because there is a historical coincidence in inverted quota, that the majority of poor people are also black. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and yeah, so I think it was actually game changing for for, yeah. for the Brazilian history. Uh, while you start you start seeing so much potential because I think it's interesting also to go back to one of the the histories of one of the theories that is a foundational history from the from Brazil uh, or the myths of historical myths that we have in Brazil. Uh, so Gilberto Freire, that was a student of Franz Boas in the U.S., mm -hmm. he first lived in when he went to his master at Baylor University in Texas. Okay, uh, he saw very vivid segregation mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, between blacks and whites in the American South, and then he goes to New York City to do his PhD at Columbia University mm -hmm. with Franz Boas, and then he goes to a port city and he also sees uh, black people being humiliated, bashed, physically bashed in the streets. And and then he thinks that his experience in the U.S. is very different than from the experience in Brazil. Right. So based on his experience, he goes back, he does an anthropological study in the 30s, and then he comes up with the term like racial democracy, yeah, right. saying that there is a concept of in which Brazil, like the three races, they had a conviviality. They were like yeah. they shared the, the common cosmic race thing we talked about a little bit before. Yeah, yeah. they shared a common space. So they yeah. were they were together. They were like in the same room. They were not trying to kill each other. They were not. Right. They were in the same the same region. And and because of this theory of racial democracy, there was the the belief that. The problem of Brazil was race. Class was never the problem. Right. And so a lot of people still believe like the Brazilians are not racist, that we only don't accept uh, poor people. But again, the majority of poor people are also black. Right. And so I think this is one of the, the issues like that this election or the importance of this election has tried to bring because uh, Lula has created pro uh, projects for people that were in extremely misery, people yeah. that were, like, he created the, the social welfare programs, which say, people would say, oh, that was Keynesianism, that we shouldn't be doing that, like right. the welfare state. Yeah. That's that's very easy to say that. Right. I think that actually speaks of, like, of a lack of class solidarity. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and also of racial solidarity. Yeah. And I think from these conditions, of course, I think what we could be problematized is that, is this enough? No, it's not enough. Yeah. So, of course, we cannot make a trickle-down economy in which we're going to be giving jobs to the poor and the majority to the rich. Right. That's, that's, not, that's not true. We have to give, like, but we have to start somewhere. We actually have to start a potentiality to make the poor understand that that's not enough, that having access to the university, that having a job, it's not enough. 
And, but that class consciousness will never arise when people are still having feudal structures in contemporary society. Right. Whether they think there is um, a God-given right to Definitely. the landowner and that they should not have anything because they are poor, because they are racialized. So I think these programs actually help to reshift the mentality of a lot of people uh, in remote zones in Brazil. Definitely. And, and that's maybe... The last topic I, I was interested in asking about was even the impact of... I, I can't remember exactly the term that was used or the name uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement that was the equivalent in Brazil, but I do remember having read a little bit about the fact that there was sort of a parallel movement. While it was happening in the U.S., there was also a resistance to racist policing and racism in Brazil in general. But I was very curious to ask about how that has impacted the left how and I think you almost just you know answered a lot of the questions saying like Lula was very inspired by this and and that has informed the campaign but to what extent the the conditions of Afro-Brazilian people have played in this campaign I know also that under Bolsonaro there was a you know a very clear acknowledgement that the country is intensifying its like racist policing with Bolsonaro and, and he's obviously a racist himself but yeah, I'm curious about generally how that movement has inspired and informed this election in different ways. I think it's so interesting. Uh, I think actually it's a, it's a uh, subject for another conversation because mm -hmm. on how the Brazilian Communist Party or the Brazilian Communists inspired the, traffic, the, the drug lords in Brazil right. because they gave a structure to the drug lords when they were in prison together. Wow. Uh, and I think it actually talks a lot about like the structures between how they were organized themselves and the police trying to fight back a structure that hmm. was. Uh, so one of the most important uh, drug lord structures that we have, drug trafficking or organized crime groups, is called uh, Comando Vermelho, the Red Command. Okay, yeah. Uh, so because they were learning the structure to organize and to get resources, like the democratic centralism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From, from the socialists uh, that were imprisoned during the dictatorship. So I think that racial debates have been are so important right now in Brazil. Uh, Bolsonaro also, he, we have this Fundação Palmares, uh, mm -hmm. named after Palmares Quilombos, Quilombo de Palmares, mm -hmm. which was a resistance group that lasted for almost 100 years uh, in the 17th century. And right now, when Bolsonaro appointed this person to be the leader of Fundação Palmares, he was prohibiting black literature. Wow. So a black man prohibiting black literature. Wow. So as if like you were trying to explode to say, I am black, so I have the right to legitimize black literature. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is one of the, the struggles that is being used, but also in the resistance to pull against the police, as you said, uh, is extremely important because, but the problem, what, what I think actually is the worst thing is that because in the U.S. you have a, a structure in which you have usually white cops killing black people. Yeah. Uh, since the colonization, we had a function that was the uh, the bounty, um, bounty hunter. Yeah, right. So that was also a black person. Mm -hmm. So, and in Brazil, we have a black police killing black people. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's very easy to go back to my previous comments in which people say we don't have a racial problem, we have a class problem because yeah. the police is also black right. and the cop is in the... and the carrier or the drug carrier is also black. Yeah. 
So it's very easy to say there is no racism because there are two black people killing themselves. Uh, I think, but I think these right now, especially during Lula years, the language, the racial language became more problematizing to see actually mm. the fact that the whites are not involved means that they are pretty much implicated in this process. And exactly. I think these are one of the things that for for the for Brazilian elite is very discomforting mm. to be called racist, to be called uh, or convent or supporter mm-hmm. of the growing war, growing civil war that we have in some states happening right now. Wow. Well, thank you so much for discussing. I really appreciate it. And this was very thorough. I feel like I, I learned a lot. Um, my last thing is I, I tend to ask people in these discussions kind of your your optimism or your your hope for the future just to give it a sort of positive note and say that there is ultimately some some hope of of change at the end in this kind of uh our revolutionary optimism that we can have so i'm curious in just in in ending just like shortly thinking about the election that will happen at the end of the month you know as much as we discussed at the beginning the kind of factors that seem negative and and could possibly a role in limiting the outcome of it. I'm curious about the broader optimism, even looking beyond Lula just as one individual, but just for the Brazilian left or for progressive Brazilians in general, the optimism you have that there can be change in the country, there can be, you know, preservation of the environment and an end to uh, the inheritance of racism in the nation. Yeah, when I was... uh when I was 15, people would say, like, oh, if you are 15, in Brazil, people would say commonly, if you're 15 and you are not a communist and you are, you don't have a heart, but if you are 30 and you are still communist, you don't have a brain. Uh, uh, so I am still, I don't think I have a brain, <laughs> because I still am pretty much believing in the revolution. I think, yeah. like, I still, uh, I think the revolution is my horizon, and... And even though I think like the the prospects are very negative in, certain, in several capacities in the whole world, not only Brazil, I think that's why I think that we were talking before like oh there's a just bourgeois election we shouldn't care about that. But I think what Lenny would say is mm-hmm. that even if it's a bourgeois election, when the stakes are so high, we should lead the masses for the mm-hmm. election to for uh, complying with the process to disappointment and lead the masses to disappointment so that we would actually create a social consciousness that only the revolution is what's going to make a better world. And I think that what's happening right now in Europe when Europeans are completely desolate because they don't know what's going to happen in the winter. Yeah. You know, they, when they, we have universities in Berlin distributing blankets because they don't know, they're telling the students that they're not going to be able to, to heat the place. Wow. Uh, where prices are going to escalate in the U.S. Of course, things are getting very bad and very dire, but I think as in the work class, working class struggle, things are going to get worse before they get better. Mm, definitely. So I think that we are having potentially room for uh, for optimism. I think we have room for also some things getting worse, mm. but also so that we can actually create some strategies to work together uh, for example, I think that's this reshifting that is happening right now with Europe and all of the tensions, the economic crisis, the gas crisis, it's placing some eyes, even from Europeans mm-hmm. in Latin America. Uh, so I think this is where are going to... And I think Latin America 
it's never, I never, I say the Latin America is not a continent. The Latin America is a laboratory. <laughs> we have been a laboratory of capitalism forever wow. uh, yeah. because of imperialism, or like the mixing of races, or like how the structural, uh, how capitalism has tried to operate in Latin America. Mm. So I believe that we lost a lot in Latin America, but we also won a lot. Yeah. So we also have a lot to teach. And, and I think that the world, the eyes of the world are looking a lot. So I've never seen as many Europeans, friends texting me, like very mm -hmm. worried about the Brazilian elections. Mm. Because they know that the stakes are high. They yeah. know that resistance is also happening. And, and I think that's going to lead us to, because they are also trying to learn from us, I believe. So we are using the language of, Latin Americanization of the U.S. Right. So when people are saying, "Oh, things in the U.S. are are becoming so bad," it feels like Latin America, and yeah. and I think Latin America can look back and teach something back to the U.S. Definitely. So when we are seeing the green movements of all of the abortion rights of women that are being unfortunately uh, dismembered by mm -hmm. an unelected Supreme Court. Uh, so American women in the streets are using green colors and actually looking at, at Latin America. I had students propose projects in which they were trying to put, put in conversation uh, women rights struggles in the U.S. with women rights struggles in, the Ameri in Latin America. Wow. So I think this is a process in which we can kind of break a little bit of the border separation. Definitely and have a more coalition between international working class. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Você vai se dar mal, etc, 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 etc